You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Zechariah is how Luke begins his story. It's how Luke begins his gospel. This priest and his wife, named Elizabeth, we discover are devoutly religious in their everyday life. They are faithful to the things of God. We also find out that they are childless and in a culture that mocks such a thing. We find out, too, that they're past, well past, childbearing age. And in Luke's retelling, today is Zechariah's turn to come into Jerusalem, and he's going to perform the temple liturgy. Since he and Elizabeth live outside Jerusalem, Zechariah would stay in a one of the hotel lodges in the temple precinct, and then afterward return home and do what priests do. And that is go about the work of teaching and leading in his community, or at least that's what Zechariah thought. Luke tells us that Zechariah has this encounter with an angel who tells him that they are going to have a baby. Zechariah, very aware of his age, responds in a way that sounds less like a hero of the faith and more like me. He looks at God and simply says, essentially, looking at the angel, I envision looking up to God, and he asks, can God really do the impossible? And how can I know this to be true? See, Zechariah is wondering if it's possible for God to do the impossible. And he needs a sign. We always need a sign. Something that will help him believe. And so he's given one, but it's in the form of discipline. You can almost see the angel put his hand on his hips in frustration, reach out and touch Zechariah's lips as to make him unable to speak. Give him a little time out. But Luke would have us know that this story is about more than Zechariah and Elizabeth and their joy into finally having a son. It's, this is a story about a promise God made long ago, one that he's absolutely determined to keep. To them, a child would be born, and his name would be John. And John would grow up a fiery and devout worshiper and preacher with a ministry that would, as the prophets prophesied long ago, would prepare the way of the coming Christ and Lord. That's true. That's true. But we also see something else. We see how Zechariah and Elizabeth's needs are actually met, how their hopes and fears are not lost on God even in light of God's big, grand story that he's going to send a king to redeem the world. And if we look carefully, we'll notice that in this story, we see God as one who is a God who loves with a self-giving love, and that even when he acts on large scales, he refuses to neglect our lives and the smaller concerns of his ordinary people. This is how God has always worked. He wants to make a path to this shalom in the Hebrew, which is peace, to this wholeness and well-being. But if we step back, we remember the backdrop of the story. See, Israel had forgotten about God's peace. 
Israel had bought into a vision of the world that convinced them that God was no longer open to new possibilities. Oh, that, and, and here's the thing. They wouldn't have said that. They wouldn't have said that God is not open to new possibilities. They never, never admitted such a thing. But you could see it whispered with their lives. Because they all responded like Zechariah, singing the same refrain from the same song that the people of God had been lamenting for 400 years, and that is this. Can God really do the impossible? And how can we know that it's true? And we shouldn't blame them. Something was wrong in their world. Herod was not the king God had promised. That was clear. Wicked foreigners had come from far away with hatred in their eyes and weapons in their hands. Darkness had overtaken their land. People were suffering. God's people, people like Zechariah and Elizabeth, had just forgotten about the possibility of peace. When you forget about peace, it's usually because you've forgotten God's promises. And when you forget about God's promises, you're left figuring it out on your own. Some things never change. Today it seems that we have forgotten about God's peace. Like the devoutly religious Zechariah, we're tempted to believe the vision of the world cast for us by society that causes us to ask, can God really do the impossible? How do we know this to be true? Something is still wrong in our world. People are still suffering. And they tell us that if we want to eliminate the suffering and feel safe and secure, then it's up to us to make it happen and we have to use every means necessary at our disposal. And, and that's not all. That's not all. They tell us that if you want to have the good life, whatever that is, that we got to keep climbing our way to the top of whatever ladder of success that we have and accumulate more stuff. They tell us that we'll find comfort in these things. But we know there is no comfort. Our upward mobility is hard. Or that the accumulation of wealth is elusive. And guys, if we're really honest, church, we don't feel any safer or more secure today than the last time we said we needed to make it happen on our own. We just have more bullets and bombs. Eventually, Zechariah believed in the God of new possibilities powerful enough to scatter every overwhelming darkness and bring peace to the valleys of fear and death. We we read that in the text when Zechariah, who believed that the good news does actually result in the advent that begins in the dark, when he said in Luke 178, because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. To guide our feet into the way of peace. In the land of darkness with all its empty promises, all its empty promises of peace, we find once again that Advent begins in the dark. And the light of new possibilities is shining. We, we should know this to be true. But the question that we have to ask is as the light of new possibilities shines to guide our feet to the path of peace, are we covering our eyes because it just seems too bright? Like, is it just asking too much of us? And so we cover our eyes. Does it mean I have to let go of things that I don't want to let go of, so I just cover my eyes? 
And so the path of peace that's been illuminated before me is just not something I can see because I need to turn away because if I go that way, it's going to cost me something. We have to ask, can we really see the light that is shining in the dark or are we just accustomed to the dark? See, as Christians, the lordship of the Christ child becomes our peace and our restoration is the promise of a second advent. Christ the King has come, and the light has dawned to scatter the darkness and the shadow of death. But will we allow the light of Christ to guide us to the path of peace? Or will we believe in the vision that has been cast to us by society that causes us to ask, can God really do the impossible? Here's the thing. You and I cannot depend on our eyes to see clearly in this world if our faith is out of focus and our imaginations too small to envision the world that is to come in the second advent. I just want to say that one more time. You and I cannot depend upon our eyes to see clearly the peace and the light, the path of Christ. If our faith is out of focus, and our imaginations too small to envision a world that is to come in the second advent of Christ. In March of 1863, 18-year-old Charles Appleton Longfellow walked out of his family's house in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And with his family unaware, he boarded a train bound for Washington, D.C., to join President Lincoln's Union Army to fight the Civil War. Less than two years earlier, Charlie's mother, Fanny, had tragically died after her dress caught on fire. Her husband, awoken from a nap, tried to extinguish the flames as best as he could, first with a rug, and then his own body. She had already suffered severe burns, and she died the next morning, July 10, 1861. Henry Longfellow's facial burns were so severe that he was unable to attend his own wife's funeral. And he grew a beard to cover the burns and wore that beard for the rest of his life. So when Charlie arrived in Washington, D.C., he sought to enlist as a private with the 1st Massachusetts Artillery. Captain McCartney, commander of Battery A, wrote to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, his father, for written permission to Charlie to become a soldier. And dad granted him permission. After participating on the fringe of a battle in Virginia between April 30th and May 6th of 1863, Charlie fell ill with typhoid fever and was sent home to recover. He rejoined his unit in August, having missed the Battle of Gettysburg. Time fast-forwards within that same year on December 1st, why Henry Wadsworth Longfellow is dining at home. He hears a knock on his door, a man delivering a telegram to inform him that his son had been severely wounded. On November 27, 1963, while involved in a skirmish during the Battle of Mine Run campaign, Charlie was shot through the left shoulder with the bullet exiting under his right shoulder blade traveled across his back and skimmed his spine. He was carried to Virginia, where he'd be transported to D.C. So, Henry and his 
younger son, Ernest, immediately set out for D.C., and they arrived December 3rd. Henry was alarmed when he found out that a son may not even make it, but then was eventually given the news that it would be a long road to healing. So that year on Christmas Day, Longfellow, this 57-year-old widowed father of six, with an oldest son, nearly paralyzed, in a war in his own country, determined to fight itself, wrote a poem. His poem sought to capture the dissonance in his own heart, the confusion, and then the world that he observed around him. He heard the Christmas bells that December day, and he heard the singing of peace on earth. He observed a world of injustice and violence that seemed to mock the truthfulness of this sort of hopeful outlook, and so he wrote this poem. I heard the bells on Christmas day, their old familial Familiar carols play, and wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the heart stones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. Longfellow was an agnostic. He was an agnostic at the time he wrote this poem. But in his longing and desperation to make sense of the world, he reached back to his Christian roots and wrote these words. Longfellow longed to embrace a different vision of the world offered to him by a country entrenched in civil war and injustice and grief. And at least in this moment, he longed for the words of Zechariah that Christ the Lord would shine light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and guide our feet to the path of peace. But sadly, Longfellow did not believe in the God who could do the impossible. He did not believe in Jesus as Lord and King. But we do, don't we? Like we believe. Like that's our confession. We've confessed that we believe His Lordship is our peace and restoration is His promise. We, we've confessed that we believe that Christ the King has come and the light has dawned to scatter the darkness and the shadow of death. But will we ask the question, 
Will I allow the light of Christ to guide me? Will we allow the light of Christ to guide us to the path of peace? And church, I think that's the question. Like, what if the path of peace is not what we think? What if the light that guides us to the path that we did not sign up for, what if the light of peace, the light that, that, that lights the path of peace, what if it shines on practices like gracious hospitality, like generosity, like forgiveness? See, the light of Christ in the Gospels reveals that when the strangers and the marginalized are welcomed and embraced, the path of peace is found. Have you thought about that? Seriously. Like, you don't find the peace haphazardly. You don't find the path haphazardly. You find it when you join Christ and where he is, and Christ was always with the marginalized and the stranger. The light of Christ reveals that when we are finally convinced that giving is more blessed than receiving, the path of peace is found. See, in the Gospels, the light of Christ reveals that when wrongs and betrayals are forgiven and enemies are loved and the persecuted are blessed, the path of peace is found. And the thing about the path is it's covered with distractions and all sorts of seductions. I mean, scattered along the path is the temptation to pursue other things that we believe can bring us peace, like climbing economic ladders, more stuff, national security, the ability to control life or manage outcomes. Scattered along the path of peace are fears and anxieties that come from a stark realization that at the end of the day, we really can't control life and manage outcomes. After all, especially when we watch the evening news or read the headlines that speak of terror and violence. And so the story goes, the story goes on, that we'll be tempted to tighten our grip on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in a kingdom that will, like all other kingdoms of the past, one day be a footnote in the pages of history. But the good news is that Advent always begins in the dark and we do not need to be afraid. It proposes to us a king of kings who invites us into a kingdom that will never falter, flounder, or fail. And if we trust him, we obey him. He'll guide our feet to the path of peace. The question for me and for you is, will we trust him? Advent proposes that God is Emmanuel. Say Emmanuel. That God is with us and reminds us that his presence is king, and the eternal life he brings is our peace. Advent proposes to us that he is our wonderful counselor. Say wonderful counselor. Counseling us, teaching us the way of hope and love and peace. Advent proposes that he is our redeemer. Say redeemer. Redeemer, assuring us that no one is ever beyond redemption, not even you. Advent proposes that He is our eternal Father. Say eternal Father. Reminding us that all people, all people, all people of all lands and all places are made in God's image and are loved far more than we can ever imagine and is worthy of all the love that we could possibly muster. Advent proposes that He is our Prince of Peace. Say Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace who invites us to be instruments of peace. Where? 
when we practice hospitality and generosity and forgiveness, we find the meaning of our identity as sons and daughters of God. And then we can say Zechariah's own words. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has visited and provided redemption for the world. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, just as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with the fathers of our faith and remembered His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham. He's given us the privilege since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies to serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness in His presence all our days. And John, the one called the prophet of the Most High, did indeed go before the Lord to prepare His way to give His people a knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high has visited us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet to the path of peace. And what's very real for us as Christians is every week our feet are guided to the path of peace that lead us to this table. Let me ask you something. Has this table become a mundane, ordinary habit for you? Or do you really see what's happening at this table? See, Luke, who wrote that, said that Jesus said that he would be with his people when the kingdom had come at this table every time they showed up. That's what he said. So somehow, based on the promise of God, Jesus is here at this table. I don't know exactly what that means, but I know that if he can't be found anywhere, he's found in the bread and the wine when the people of God come to the table. That I know because he made that promise. But here's the thing. There's a sign of that. You know what the sign is? You and me. We're the sign. We are the sign of peace at work. Because without Christ, there would be no us. Like the rest of society, our politics, our ideologies, our ways of seeing the world would just divide us. Like the rest of the world, the colors of our skin and our places of origin would just divide us. But on Sundays, when we gather to worship the God and Father who gave us the Christ who has come and is coming again, and we come to this table, like all of a sudden, all those things that divide the rest of society, they don't divide us. And what we discover is that our half-hearted lives are made whole. And that, my friends, is peace. And so every week when we gather, when your feet hit the ground, you walk the path of peace. And along the way, you stumble into a table where Jesus is Lord and gracious host. And there's not one person he'll ever turn away. Never. If you'll just come. You'll just come. The invitation to every sermon that's ever preached in this church is to the table. Because at the table you meet Jesus. If 
you'll open your eyes and see. So when you hold the bread and you hold the cup, you hold the expressions of the very real body of the God who put on skin and lived and loved and died and rose again and ascended as Lord and King of Kings who made a promise that he's coming again and while we wait will meet us here every single week. And so listen, I don't know what you feel when you come to the table. Sometimes the bread is good and sometimes it's not, right? Like sometimes the grape juice tastes fine and sometimes I don't know where we got it from. But that's not the point. That's the reality of feelings. The point is that in the Christian story, the bread becomes the body and the cup becomes the blood. And it's no longer just merely bread and cup. And the table becomes something more than just wood. It becomes a community that gathers together where in the presence of Christ, all of our feelings are reoriented because of faith and peace meets us here. That's why we do it every week. Christ is present. Come. Because I'll tell you, the only way I can sing the song that we're about to sing now, the only way that I could ever stand up and say that it is well with my soul, is because I know that when it's not well with my soul, Christ is holding my soul in His hands. And that alone can make me well.